Good day and welcome to Duke ITNCU. You're about to listen to a recording of the workshop, Writing for Scientific Publications. This workshop was conducted by Dr. Lakshmi Goyal. Dr. Goyal has over five years of editorial experience and was most recently a senior editor at Cellhost and Microbe. She joined Cell Press in 2001 as an editor on the Cell, Molecular Cell, and Developmental Cell team. Before joining Cell Press, she was a postdoctoral fellow at MIT and holds a PhD from Rutgers University. This workshop has been brought to you by the Office of Postdoctoral Services. The, the true, true title of my talk, what I'm really qualified to tell you about, is the process of publishing or how uh, the life of a paper when it goes through uh, a journal at Cell Press. Um, and what, what, I, what I will do is, because of having handled these kinds of papers, so many papers in different fields, I'll try to interject along the way what I have seen as um, tips I can provide to, you, to somebody who's writing a paper, or who's submitting a paper, uh, or who's, who's looking to you know, publish in a so-called high-profile journal. And as Molly pointed out, I'm, you know, I, the, my background is, the reason I'm qualified is, I started at Cell. Cell has been the uh, journal where I've spent most of my editorial life. And I've worked on multiple other journals. And as of last year, March of last year, this is the first anniversary cover, actually, um, just released today. March of last year, we started a new journal called Cell Host and Microbe, and I'm the editor for that journal. And so that's, that's where my perspectives come from, the kind of perspectives I'm going to give you. What happens when, uh, so, so I'm going to tell you from the editor's perspective, you know, I'm looking at, you're, you're going to hear it from my eyes. What happens when a paper arrives at, at the journal? So every day we get together, the editors meet, and we talk about a brief discussion of the paper, meaning you, know, you look at the abstract, have they had, have they had any related papers, uh, sort of the first take on the paper, um, sometimes we read the cover letter to see, you know, we're missing the significance based on the abstract. Perhaps the cover letter says something. And then the, the uh, paper gets assigned to one of the editors on the team as sort of the primary handling editor of the paper. The assigned editor actually reads every paper carefully from, uh, I, I have stopped reading methods and materials unless I, there's something I don't understand. But typically, up until the end of the discussion, I read the paper. Um, and PubMed is a great tool to find out, you know, put the paper in a bit of context, you know, what, what's the background, what's been published recently, and what's not. Uh, you expect the introduction of the paper to give some of that background as to what's been published and what's not, um, but in some cases, uh, people do miss some very recent, very relevant citations, and PubMed is really where you can find out what's already known in the field. And then, then we start asking these questions. Does it fall, primarily, does it fall within the scope of the journal? Well, if it's, a, if it's a journal as broad as Cell, that's less of an issue. But for a journal like Cell Host and Microbe, or Developmental Cell, or something slightly more focused, the issue is, is this something, as an editor, you think of in the broad scope of the journal? Um, say, for example, you know, for Cell Host and Microbe, we made the decision that uh, basic microbial biology, as in cell biology or D, uh, microbial DNA repair, wouldn't fall under the, the purview of the journal. Um, and so those are the kinds of things I mean by when we say scope. 
And then comes the significance. So what is the advance here? How far does it take you beyond what was known in the field? Um, could, could you have really predicted the results? Is it sort of joining the dots? In, in, in case of a specialized journal, is it, is it just extrapolating in a second organism what has already been known in a first organism? Um, and again, those are some of the examples of what I mean by significance. And sometimes you may be talking about, um, again, every example I give, it's just an example. Please don't take it to heart as being sort of you know, um, the truth in any way. Um, so for example, you can talk about miRNAs and viruses. And you can say, well, are you learning something beyond, uh, beyond just the biology for the virus? Are you learning something about miRNA regulation that you hadn't thought about before? So that's what I mean by sort of significance. Sometimes the significance is narrowly related to the context of the paper. Sometimes what you learn from a system can be extrapolated beyond the context of the paper. Um, and really, for a, for, a, for a journal of the caliber of definitely Cell and any other Cell Press journal, it's always nice to have a paper that sort of opens up uh, um, a new way of thinking about something or a new line of research or you, you're going that one step beyond then rather than just status quo of the field um, and, and um, although those papers are difficult to get published papers that defeat dogma are really given a lot of uh, consideration. We really try to take the author along when it comes to defeating dogma because we know that certain dogmas in the field, we know who the reviewers are. And when I come to reviewer selection, I'll tell, I'll kind of sort of go over it again. Uh, we know who the people are in the field who are on one side of the dogma, and we calibrate for those things. And so uh, defeating dogma is not easy, and we really value papers that go against the, you know, what has been sort of thought, thought of as the, um, uh, as the, as the, the most basic truth in the field. Um, and is the phys work physiologically relevant? And I, I, as I mentioned, I'm going to uh, go into a little bit into what you can take away from this when you're thinking about your own work and writing your own papers. But um, it's always worth um, taking any system beyond just the test tube. Where in, nor in, in um, biology, where in normal physiology or in um, disease pathology, will this paradigm hold true? Can you extrapolate it? Can you take it back into uh, a physiological system? So those are some of the you know, first, first round questions we ask. Um, and you know, when you're reading a paper, some papers are just a pleasure to read. And it's, it's, there's a logic of the way things have been done. And right from the beginning, the author literally is hand-holding you and taking you through the process of how they thought through this paper. Um, but, but again, I, I, in trying to give you some tips on how to write it, but that may not necessarily be how the research was done, mind you. Um, the order in which the work emerged in the lab it not, is not necessarily the best order of presentation. So when you, Often you read papers and they sound so beautiful and so full and so complete, but that's not how data emerges. Data emerges in, in smaller quanta, perhaps. Um, and I think there is, there is a knack to putting a paper together by sewing these, these quanta to make, make a full paper. Um, and we do appreciate it when reading, when reading a paper, you, if you're kind of taken through the logic in a very smooth way. Um, and I, I don't know if I mentioned this. Uh, I, oh, yeah, I mentioned physiological relevance. Um, but, but the other point, the other question we ask is, 
um, is there is there causality? Is there in this day of RNA? I mean, I know some of you are not biologists, but at least in biology, I can tell you, in this day of RNA, I think it's almost expected to say, you know, can you knock out if you have if you have a pathway or a gene, can you knock it out and show that you get a consequence? Is there a, can you causally relate it or is it a correlate correlation? Um, so do you directly test the hypothesis that you're you're starting with, or is it that you say, well? This goes up and this goes down, so we think this is interacting with this. You know, you know, it's like it's like a, um, it's it's like um, you, you you're sort of joining the dots, and the dots are pretty far away. Uh, I talked about physiological relevance, and finally, technical quality. I mean, this is the reason I said I don't often look at the methods in the paper because we do leave the technical quality um, assessment to the reviewers, um, at least at this stage of the proceedings. <laughs> Um, later on, there are conditions where a reviewer comes back and says, um, you know, this is not being done according to the standards in the field, and the author argues back saying, well, but this recently published paper did exactly this, and they got published in XYZ journal, so we have to moderate that, and we do go into technical details at that point, and I do go in detail and look at each gel, but at this stage of the proceedings, when I'm making that first call whether to review the paper or not, I'm not looking at the technical issues at all. How can, um, I, I've tried to sort of um, give you along the way what you can take away from, from my perspective as an editor in writing the paper or presenting the paper. Um, but really, to go back over, over some of the things is, um, place the work in context. What is the important question? I said, you know, you have multiple pieces of data, and it's very tempting to put all pieces of data into one paper and make multiple points. But I think a paper is really more effective if you can take only a subset of the data that make a core bottom line. A, a single conclusion is always the most powerful way to go with a paper. Um, and, and I mean, it's, it's possible that sometimes you can't come up with a single bottom line. But, but the temptation to put multiple pieces of data and confound it and to sort of dilute out the impact of any one um, conclusion you're drawing from it. It's very high, because I remember as a postdoc, we get married to our data. You get very personal about your data. And, uh, but remember, this paper is not just a venue for putting data out. Um, if that was the case, I think you know, I would argue very strongly that we should just have repositories of data. I think a paper is a place to tell a story, in a way. Um, and it's a, a paper is a place to put the data in context. And putting that data in context with a single strong bottom line will give you the most powerful paper. Um, I, I think the second one, everybody understands you know, how difficult it is to read a paper where uh, the language is not clean. And so, um, and you know, I, I'm uh, although I was born, I mean, I was speaking English from when I was five. I'm not native English speaker, um, so even I sometimes, even today, I sort of second guess my own writing. And I think it's not a bad idea to you know who the who the people in your department are who are just very good at picking uh, picking apart the English, or or very good at uh, proofreading or critiquing. 
and it's really worth going down the hall and giving the paper to somebody else. And I, I know it's time on their part, but I think if there's a reciprocal arrangement of somebody in your lab and somebody in their lab does it for each other, um, it can be very useful to take the paper because it, 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 the idea is somebody else who hasn't thought about that research every day of their life or is not, has not heard you speak about it is reading it with a fresh mind um, and sort of a de novo read and saying, but this just doesn't make sense. How did you jump from this happening to this next segment of your results? Um, and that's what I mean by bad logic, lack of focus, uh, all of those things. Um, I, I already said show your papers to your colleagues. Um, um, and I, I think I said this about um, correlations. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's very tempting to take it beyond that, that, you know, beyond what you have and make very large sort of extrapolated statements. A degree of speculation is not bad. Um, but it's worth sort of uh, reining in that level of speculation and saying we'll just keep it to one degree of speculation. Um, and to be very clear about what the data really concludes. And, and I think the discussion of a paper really gives you room, opportunity, um, and, and that's the space to sort of extrapolate beyond what the data actually shows into sort of bit of a hypothetical realm, and I think, I think it is useful, but it's, very, it's necessary to be very clear about it. Um, as, again, as a young postdoc, I remember reading the discussions of papers and sometimes taking away what was sort of hypothetical and what was uh, extrapolated as being the truth. Um, and and um, now that I'm, I've, I read papers for, as an editor, I'm very cautious of that, and I kind of rein that in very quickly. Um, title and abstract, I cannot emphasize, especially these days, no, not many people actually read a journal cover to cover. You know, um, I think all of you will nod your heads when I say that most um, research, you, you, you're finding through PubMed searches. And what do you see first in PubMed is the title and the abstract. So I cannot over, uh, overemphasize the importance of having an effective title and an effective abstract, especially abstract. So um, we typically um, edit, uh, you know, extensively edit every abstract that before publication. So the abstract you see at the time when you read the journal is not what the author sent in at all in 90% of the cases. Um, so writing a good abstract, especially because, remember, we have a 150-word limit. Different journals have different limits, but it's typically, you know, anywhere between 100 and 200 words. In 200 words or less, you have to tell your audience what the core message of the paper is. Um, and I think it, it's, it's a bit of an art. And doing that well, uh, as I mentioned, because of all, all uh, literature being searched through PubMed today, which only shows abstract and title, I think abstract and title are critical. Um, I mean, this is a sort of a cartoon that illustrates um, some of what I've been trying to say. <laughs> Um, the, the, the other things we do look at, we do look at the cover letter. The cover letter is a place not to reiterate the abstract. Um, it is a place to say beyond what the abstract is able to show. It's, it's a place to sort of put your work in context of something uh, of broader literature and say um, the novel aspects or the, the, the parts of this paper that really take things forward are 
X, Y, Z. You know, maybe a three-point um, sort of highlighting what the significance of the paper is beyond what the abstract can tell you. Um, so I, I would say, you know, it's worth taking the extra time to write the cover letter. It's pretty much, it's much like I think I was told when I've been applying for jobs that while your CV tells a lot about you, your cover letter is really your voice to the person who's reading. And in a way, your cover letter is your voice to be able to speak to us editors directly. Because the cover letter is not seen by the reviewers. It's us editors who see the cover letter. So it's worth putting, you know, what are the salient, salient findings? Two sentences. Do not reiterate the abstract. It's worth saying what's the significance of the findings of general readership. Um, um, it's, it's worth putting in what, you know, what different fields. I was talking about um, RNAi and uh, viral infection. Perhaps there's a finding in there that goes beyond just viral biology, and it's maybe appealing to people who think about RNAi who are not necessarily virologists. Um, so that's what we mean by what fields would be interested. And you can always, if, if you're writing a paper, every journal has a different format of writing the paper. So you don't want to format the paper or start writing the paper, you know, putting the final version together, unless you have a sense of, you know, are they, I'm thinking of whatever, cell, but are they even interested in this paper? Is this even in the realm of things they'll consider? You can send a pre-submission inquiry. Um, the pre-submission inquiry can, you know, the, the details are often found on the websites of the journals, all journals, and I, I think Nature and Science have it too. Um, and in the pre-submission inquiry, it's worth attaching a, a draft abstract, a title, um, worth you know, stating some of the things that I mentioned here for cover letter and asking, is the paper appropriate for the journal? Um, and if it's not, it's, but if, if you're willing to say, I'm willing to do that extra work that it takes because I really am keen on getting this paper published or at least getting it considered for this journal, asking or communicating with the editor to find out what, what would it take to make this a strong candidate for the journal? It's, it's like, you know, I have this result. It may, it, you, it may be a, a start. It may be preliminary. You think it's a very exciting result. Um, but it's worth having that, that communication with the editor and some back and forth to figure out what you need to bring it to the level where the editor will consider it. Um, so at that point, the first editorial decision on a paper, remember I said I don't look at the technicalities, I'm looking at certain things, I do read the paper fully. Um, <clears throat> to send it out for review or return it to the author. It's returned to the author within one to three days. I mean, that's a bit seasonal because it seems um, summertime, we're all traveling and the submissions seems, tend to be higher. Just before Christmas, everybody thinks they want to dump their papers, just before the holidays, everybody wants to dump their papers on you. And typically, we are short-staffed food because people are taking time off. So um, it may take more than three days, but you know, we try our very best to do it within uh, 24 to 48 hours. Um, send out for review, you know, typically two to four experts. We try to get at least three people. Three people. On an average, every paper has, um, again, it's an average, has three reviewers. And I'll come to reviewer selection in a bit. Um, and a review, I mean, at least for cell host and microbe, it's taking three weeks to get a paper reviewed. Um, uh, so, you know, we, we are aiming at all points to get a final decision to the author back in four weeks from the time it was submitted. Because the review takes three weeks, you know, by the time you, um, you uh, make a decision, especially if the decision is a difficult one. Um, so, role of the reviewer. The reviewer, we're expecting for technical merits of the paper. Um, 
I, I think I have one on review selection too, but if I don't, I'll touch on it. So we're ex we asking for expert advice on the technical merits of the paper, as well as the conceptual advance. In editorially, in, in, in journals that are pro edited by professional uh, editors, like the cell press journals, we have a certain leeway, you know, we do overrule reviewers and we are able to make decisions because I say, you know, as an editor, I say, I think it's a cool paper and as long as there are no technical faults in the paper and as long as the reviewers sign off on it on the technical level, I'm going to overrule the conceptual aspect. Having said that, though, we are looking for people in the community to say, yes, this is an interesting paper. So we are looking for um, some sort of a feedback from the reviewers on the conceptual aspects of the paper. Um, and I think most importantly, um, over time we learned this process of some reviewers are particularly good at, it's easy to trash a paper, honestly. It's very easy to say, this doesn't, doesn't cut the, you know, make the standards for this journal, send it away. Um, but I think it's what really the review process is expected to do is to develop a paper, is to say there is an aspect of this paper which is interesting, but it needs some more work, and to sort of take the paper forward. And we are, we are looking for reviewers to give us um, constructive, fair and constructive feedback, that even if we tell the authors, we are sorry we cannot publish your paper, the authors shouldn't take those four weeks of the paper having been at the journal as a sort of a waste. Instead, they should say, it was a constructive review process. Even though the paper was rejected, I took away something from this. I can you know, rework the paper and send it to another journal. Um, so we are looking for reviewers who, you know, over time, we sort of know who the reviewers who give constructive feedback are and what fields and, and where are the polarized opinions in the field and so on. Um, choice of reviewers, I mentioned to you. Um, so in, in going back over my last slide as to what, what we are looking for from the reviewers, it's very important that all technical aspects of the paper are covered, especially these days when multidisciplinary approaches are used to do, uh, to do science. It's very important that, for example, there may be um, a modeling section in the paper, and then there may be you know, a, a real wet biology section where they go back and take the results obtained from modeling and they prove a hypothesis. So we are looking for reviewers who will cover all aspects of the paper. We're looking for somebody who understands the biology, somebody who understands how the modeling was done, and somebody perhaps um, who's, who works right in that system and somebody who works slightly outside. Uh, we're looking for whether the methods are uh, stringent, whether these are standards in the field, um, how significant is the paper for the field, especially for a journal like Cell Host and Microbe. Um, the, the principle is significance for the field. And the big picture, big picture meaning that's the reason to choose somebody slightly outside of the core subject area of the paper. Because we're asking, you know, an average reader, somebody who doesn't think about um, miRNAs in virology, in, in viral miRNAs, but you, you read the paper, is it something you take something away from? I mean, every paper should have some readability and value to it. And we're always looking for that big picture. And that's the reason to choose somebody. For example, for a plant innate immunity paper, we might choose a mammalian innate immunologist. Because we would like to hear, maybe yes, for that paper is, of course, you know, probably going to be applicable to people who are in the plant field. They're all going to like it. But we would like to hear the mammalian innate immunologist say, yeah, we, you know, I found something interesting in this paper. 
that's that's what we think. We, I, I mean, I mean by saying big picture. Um, should you exclude or recommend reviewers? Um, yes, you can exclude and recommend reviewers, but do not exclude the whole field. It makes life very difficult for us. So typically, we ask you to maintain reviewer exclusions to between uh, three and four reviewers. Um, and and uh, the other thing we get is, um, please exclude so-and-so and all his colleagues, all her colleagues or whatever. Everybody who's ever worked with them has to be excluded. Those kinds of uh, expectations are unreasonable. And we've, um, once you have asked us to exclude three or four people, we value and we respect those exclusions to the last T. We will never send a paper to those people or people in that institution even. Um, and we uh, typically don't send papers to immediate collaborators. We will not send papers to post your postdoctoral advisor, for example, after you've started your own lab. Um, so there are certain rules. You don't send papers to people in the same institution. Um, that becomes difficult with an institution like Harvard, which is so large. So in that case, we say at least, you know, if you know they're in the same department, you don't send the paper to the same person. Um, and truly, I mean, I try to avoid sending it to the same person within the same with the same institution, whether they know whether they know each other or not is not consequential. Um, and uh, about recommending reviewers, yes, you can recommend reviewers as many as you like, um, and sometimes we do find it very useful, and we do use your recommendations. But unlike the case of the exclusion, where we will take your your suggestion of excluded reviewers. Um, very seriously, your recommendations may not necessarily be used. Um, although I did say they were useful. Um, so when the reviews come back, so that was the first editorial decision on the paper, to review it or not to review it. Um, actually, that's the easier decision because you're, you have certain criteria, you're looking at it, you're, you're making certain judgment, certain calls. It is when the paper comes back from the reviewers where we really have the more difficult decision to make. Because uh, any of you who's received reviews can understand that um, reviews are most often mixed. You know, Because we're sending the paper to people from very different fields. So it's not unexpected that, I mean, it's, it's very few cases where I've seen three reviewers come back and say, oh, this is a fabulous paper, publish it as, publish it as is. It, in my entire time, it's not happened probably four times I've seen it. So it's not very frequent. And so a decision is often weighed on multiple factors. Reviewers will always ask for additional work to be done. The question is, how reasonable is the work? If what the reviewer is asking entails generating a new mouse line or and generating a new, new knockout line of mice, it's kind of unreasonable to send the paper back to the author and say, do this, and we'll reconsider the paper. So we try to draw the balance and say, you know, is this knockout mouse really essential? And if they didn't have the knockout mouse, would it still be a paper that the journal is interested in? Is there still some, something in this paper that's worth publishing? Or could they do something else? Perhaps could they obtain cell lines from this knockout mouse, um, you know, or bone marrow macrophages from these, these knockout mice, and do some experiments, which would essentially address the sort of larger concerns that the reviewer had. Um, so, and as I said, we, we do overrule reviewers, so we interject our own opinion at this point. 
Um, and that, that's why I think that first read of the paper for us is so important, because it gives you a gut feeling of how you think of the paper. Um, and often, often, you know, as, especially as I've become more experienced, I think that initial uh, read is, is more and more valuable to me, because that's the time I'm reading the paper without any bias um, from the reviewers. I'm not biased by what the reviewers have said, and it's my first level opinion of the paper. Um, um, I'm, I'm just trying to think. Um, so, I, you know, it's not a simple yes and nays. There's a lot of considerations that go into that decision process. Um, technically, if the paper has so many technical issues. Um, we typically say it may be worth for you to just go somewhere else. The reason is maybe just addressing each of those technical issues may take a year's time to get the paper back. And um, sometimes, you know, technically very poor papers are a bit of a turnoff for the reviewers. Um, with regard to um, time limit, you've got to say, you know, this, you're asking this paper to come back. But you're giving, we're giving approximately two months to get the revisions done. So you've, if you're asking the paper to come back, you've got to be realistic and say, is a two, three, two to three month time frame a reasonable period of time to get these revisions done? If not, perhaps they should take the paper elsewhere. Um, is, it, is it something so interesting that you're willing to overrule some, some sort of, you know, the reviewer has asked for a particular experiment. Even if they didn't do that experiment, the paper still holds. So there are various sorts of things we weigh at this point. Um, and also reviewers' opinions. And although I'd said, uh, you know, we do overrule reviewers, it's very hard, no matter how enthusiastic you felt as an editor about the paper, if three reviewers from sort of slightly different areas of, of research are coming back and saying, nah, this just doesn't have enough significance, or, you know, didn't we already know this? Or, you know, that recent paper that was published in that other journal three months ago, said pretty much everything, and then adding this one little point to it. Or, you know, so it's very hard to overrule three review, three negative reviews. Um, so we weigh all those things when we make the decisions. And ultimately, our goal is to communicate the decision and the reasons for the decision as clearly to the authors as we can. And one of the things is, if in principle you were not interested in the paper, I think sending the author back to do all this work uh, where you when you always felt sort of ambivalent about publishing this paper is a waste of the author's time. So I'm very conscious about making sure that if I'm sending the paper saying, you know, do this revisions and, you know, we'll, we'll be glad to reconsider the paper, that I feel pretty strongly about, about supporting the paper through to publication. Uh, and the exception there being if there are significant technical concerns that defeat the basic premise of the paper. I mean, if there's this core experiment which is, you know, in, had, which has technical issues, then it becomes sort of, you know, no matter how enthusiastic I feel about the concepts in the paper, it's hard for me to sort of handhold the paper forward. Um, so the, the types of decision letters is um, accepted. That never happens in the first round, very, very rarely. Uh, rejected and resubmission considered. Sometimes we do what is called as a rejection with an open door rejection, meaning um, really we cannot tell whether the revisions once done will make this paper sufficient. Because what happens is sometimes the authors ask for, I mean, sorry, the reviewers ask for an experiment. The experiment can have two outcomes. 
if one outcome may be the really exciting outcome, but the other outcome maybe makes the paper fall completely flat. So you want to see the result of that experiment before you're able to say whether you want to reconsider, you know, you're willing to send the paper back to reviewers. So in the cases where it's an open-door rejection, um, you, ha it's, it, you can always contact the editor um, when you're ready with your revisions and say, is this something you would, you would reconsider? Um, when, when, we are, when we invite the resubmission, that is, you know, do these revisions and we'll send it back to the reviewers, um, it is important, I, I would say, to provide a point-by-point, point, I think most of you know this, uh, to provide a sort of a um, response to the reviewers, explicit, open response to the reviewers. And at that point, a few things I have noticed is um, if, if there is a portion of the reviewer's request that has not been complied with, rather than just hiding it under the rug, it's actually better to, to be honest about it and to explain your position to the, to the reviewer. Because I think reviewers get annoyed again when uh, their comments have been completely ignored. Ignoring reviewers' comments is not a very wise thing to do. It's better to be upfront about it and explain your position uh, if, it's, if your position is counter to what the reviewer is asking for. Um, and in, in the point-by-point -point response also, it's, it's worth kind of saying what new experiments were done. Um, because as an editor, I want to know that a good faith effort was done to revise the paper, and not that every point the reviewers made has been argued through. Um, sometimes that works. I'm not saying it doesn't. Uh, but you know, you were given two months to do revisions. The reviewers clearly asked for certain experiments to be done. And if nothing has been done, and the paper comes back in a week with, with an argument as to why none of it's going to work, that's a bit of a difficult situation for us. Uh, if it's rejected and you want to appeal, um, of course, it's very tempting to pick up the phone and yell at the editor. Um, I would suggest waiting 24 hours because your perspective on the rejection might change in 24 hours. Put the, put the letter, put the reviews you know, on your desk. Go home for the night. Come back the next day and read it again. Your whole perspective may be very different. And at that point, if you call the editor or you email the editor, Maybe the way you're approaching is going, it's going to be different. It's going to be much more, if I did this, this, and this, is this something you would reconsider? Or you'd, you'd write a little bit more logical um, rebuttal than if you did it um, when you're emotionally sort of uh, carried away by the reviews. So I would, I would recommend, just, um, I think that's a good lesson for life overall because, um, because I'm in the same shoe in the opposite direction. That is, you know, you get a nasty rebuttal from an author and it's very tempting to write back then and there. Um, and, and basically the author is saying, you, you, you don't know what you're talking about. You have no brains and so on and so forth. And you, it's very tempting to want to retort right then and there. But I think even I have learned that just letting it sit there for a day or two uh, and then going back and reading it with a little bit more rational thinking with the, the mind that's calmer makes for a much more constructive commu communication with the author. And ditto for you guys is it makes for a more constructive communication with the editors. Um, appealing a decision, um, you know, editors do make mistakes. Um, and no matter how much I say about, you know, we know that who, who are the reviewers who are polarized on a, on a scientific position and where there are contentions in fields and so on, 
There are still reviewers where we don't understand, you know, sometimes um, there are, you know, contentious issues and they come out in reviews. So, um, and if we do make mistakes, you know, you can always persuade us to tr try to change our minds. Um, I would say emailing is, is at least emailing first and saying, then can I have a conversation with you, is a great way to go to, to um, contact the editor. Send an email describing your position as to why you think the reviews were unfair, if that's what you think, why the decision was unfair, if that's how you think, and then uh, say, is it possible to set up a time when we can talk about this? And scientific arguments only, not that you are such a nitwit editor that I've, you know, none of that, just scientific arguments only. Um, and, and I have learned a lot from in my interactions and communications with the author. And um, I think the more you interact, the reverse also. I, I, I do believe that there's something to be learned from both sides and from every criticism. And um, although I've had cases where the author gets very personal about the review in the, in the beginning, but eventually the paper makes it, or eventually, even if the paper gets, gets rejected, when the paper does get published elsewhere, the, um, most authors eventually feel that the review process took their paper forward and it made for a better paper. Um, and, and, you know, we tell the reviewers the same thing, that, you know, when you, when you write your review, uh, even if you have a criticism, not to bring personal conflicts into, into, you know, stating the criticism and trying to keep it as respectful as possible. So, in conclusion, um, take a core message of the data you have. And I think I used to feel the best way to do it was lay all your data out on, you know, a conference table or a big table and actually put it together, not, not in the order in which the data was obtained in the lab, but in a potential seven-figure paper or five-figure paper, whatever you want to do, and say, you know, this could be figure one, A, B, C, and so on, and see if it weaves a story, and then take out all the pieces of data that don't fit into that, that sort of structure. Um, and, and, you know, core one central take-home message can really work much better for a paper, I think. Um, and remember, the editor is there to work for you. And I uh, do believe that communication with the editor, right from the time of pre-submission inquiry, can actually benefit you and the paper. Glad to take questions. Rather than tips, I think the easiest way to do that is actually to come back for another session and bring with me um, abstracts that were poor in the beginning and show you how we've reworked it. And I have a feeling if I give you a few, um, you know there are times it takes me two hours to write an abstract, to rework an abstract. Sometimes maybe just bringing those examples um, and putting them up and talking about them in a sort of a workshop fashion might actually be, it's very hard for me to say. So uh, there are few, few, of course, I can give you a few typical four sentences as guidelines. Like, for example, you want to start with uh, establishing the background, right? Um, I mean, the, the other problem with giving examples is because this is a diverse community, if I gave a biology example, not every, not, I don't know if everybody would even, even understand it. Whereas I think if I gave a few examples, 
Um, so a first sentence of background, and then you have to segue into why the question you're posing in this paper is even important. I mean, you may be very excited about a story, but if you can't communicate that excitement to the reader, why should I be excited about your story, your uh, research, or that what is given in that paper? So I think that second sentence has to be, I mean, remember, you, you're really short on words. Um, so what I tend to do is that in the first pass, I don't worry about, uh, about length. And then I start to really edit, 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 and say, you know, do I really need this? Do I really need that? And in, in doing that editing, what people tend to do is you put in jargon. I mean, uh, par pardon all the immunologists here, but immunology, for example, is full of jargon. Don't assume, especially for a journal like South Houston Microbe, which is trying to cross disciplines, don't assume that the jargon that's very commonly used in your field of research is something that, that a non-specialist would understand. Um, T-regs, I mean, everybody, you know, T-regs for immunologists is, is everyday stuff, but really, what are T-regs? Um, things like that. And the, so you, so while, while you're, while, when you, so first pass, you write out, you know, you, the, the whole thing, and then when you're trying to edit, don't compromise on these, uh, sort of in, on defining these terms. Um, and the second thing is, so the first sentence is background, second sentence is why do you think, you know, so in the context of that background, what's the question? What, what is it that is important here? Uh, and then you go into your results. The other thing people do typically is, again, this is our tendency to be so fond of our results that you want to state every result in the abstract. Doesn't work. Um, and you also, it's very, very typical to want to say how you did it. I mean, the, the tour de force approach of, um, you know, some fancy microscopy. Um, unless that is a, you know, a, the, one of the take-home messages of the paper, that this is the first time intravital microscopy has been used to see a pathogen infection of dendritic cells in vivo or something like that, to, to talk about the methodology in detail in the abstract is really distracting. I think you're taking away from the, the... And I think it's worth leaving... So I would say the next three sentences should be your results, stated as succinctly as possible. And I would say the last sentence should be some sort of a take-home message. It either could be a summary or it could be the implication. Yeah? Um, so if there's a situation where uh, you submit a paper and the reviewer comes back and says, yeah, say you're... Uh, say you're a cell biology lab, and the reviewer comes back and says, well, if your paper would be very strengthened by doing some electron microscopy, uh, it shows global libation or whatever it is, uh, but you don't, say your lab doesn't even do electron microscopy, and you would have to go out and learn a new method. What do you do as an editor when you have a situation where uh, a reviewer asks for a particular experiment that the, 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 the so in this day, because, because science has become so multidisciplinary, and, and most papers now are collaborative papers, it's more and more and more we see multiple senior investigators on a paper. Um, I, what I would really encourage you to do is to go look around and say, is there a lab where you can collaborate? Um, and that person gets an authorship on the paper from doing this. Um, it's, it's sort of funny how we've had cases where 
the reviewer of the first round ends up collaborating with the authors mm -hmm. because they are the only ones who have the mouse or they're the only ones who know how to do that experiment. Um, but typically, I can't overrule something like that if it is a reasonable, sort of it's, it's, a, it's, it's a good way to test, um, say suppose a protein-protein interaction um, or you know, you're looking for a localization of something in an organelle and they're asking you to use some technique. If there's some other way to do it, uh, I'd be glad to have this conversation with the author and talk, discuss it. Uh, but if you throw that back at the reviewer, the position usually is in this day and age, you should be able to collaborate with labs. So the first thing I would do if I was an author and that those kinds of comments came back to me is to try to find a collaboration. And if that's not possible, then start to ask, what is the deeper, so, the, so any experiment that you think is not doable, um, what I would say is ask yourself the question, what is the underlying problem that they're trying to address? What is the underlying question they're trying to ask? I mean, they may be suggesting you do it by this, whatever the technique they've asked you to use is. But the technique is really not consequential. What it is is they're asking to see more support of the fact that these two proteins in localize there or interact there or whatever it is. Can you approach that with in some, uh, by some other technique? Something you, you know your lab does well, or you know you can establish a collaboration rather rapidly. Um, so I, I would always ask, um, you know, if you can establish a collaboration in this day and age, <coughs> collaborative projects, I think, really um, make for a stronger paper. But if you cannot, I would say, what is the underlying question that's being asked here? And you cannot, can you address it some other way? Yep. So percentage of you so you're asking first round, first round, uh, first round you're asking. <laughs> different journals, it's different, I have to be honest, because um, Cell receives far many more submissions. Cell Host and Microbe is a young journal, uh, so the um, number of papers we receive is far less. So um, I can, I, I, unfortunately I don't have full numbers for you from Cell right now, because I've, I've not been at Cell for a year now. But at cell host and microbe, I would say 45 to 50% of the papers are called back in. Um, yeah, about 40% of the papers are called back in. So if they have common, like, such as like, your paper is so long, and if you are it short, will you be considering? Do you, like, what's your suggestion? What's your recommendation? Like, do I still consider to submit again, or I have to switch to another journal? If, if it, so, I mean, there's something about reading the review, uh, the editor's letter. I mean, it's a bit of a, the editor's speak is never very direct speak. <laughs> we'll never tell you, you know, we've got a bunch of trash in this paper, take it away. That's not how we'll ever say it. I'm being crude here, but you, you know, it's, it's, um, so you've got to read through some of that uh, editor's speak. And, you, you know, I mean, I've, I've been asked this very often, and if I read a letter, I can tell you immediately what the editor is trying to tell you. If there is an explicit invitation for resubmission, it'll be in the very first sentence, first or second sentence. And it will say something like, we'd be glad to consider your, reconsider your paper, or happy to reconsider your paper, provided this happens. Okay, and if, they, if that, if, that um, if the obvious indication is not there, 
um, then you have to start reading a little bit deeper into the letter. And um, if it is just a matter of reducing length and so on, um, it should be pretty explicitly stated. But if it is a matter of doing some additional work and reducing the length of the paper, maybe the reduction in the length comes later on in the letter and there's something else they want you to do besides that. Um, what should the author have ready before um, making a pre-submission call to the editor? You should know what your paper is going to be about. You should have the structure. I mean, you haven't written, even if you haven't written the paper, it's okay. Um, but you should have a clear idea in your head what the structure of your paper is. You know, what six figures, seven figures, whatever you're going to put in it. What is the core conclusion you're going to make at the end of it? Remember, data can be interpreted in many ways. I mean, you can look at a piece of, um, unfortunately, all my examples were from biology, I'm sorry. Um, you can look at a, you know, a, 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 um, a paper and say, I'm gaining new insights into PI3K biology here, signaling. No, could be a signaling angle. But then you might have gone and then at the end of the thing tested it in some model of uh, cardiac hypertrophy or something. And then you have some insight for disease. Now the question is, how are you going to put it? Yeah, are you going to put it as insight for the disease? So you bring the disease up front and say the mechanism is the signaling pathway. Or you're going to say this signaling pathway has this little nuance and it is relevant because, look, it applies to this um, the pathophysiology of cardiac hypertrophy. I mean, how are you going to place it? So you should have that, that the uh, idea in you. It's like, um, uh, let's put it this way. You are building a house. You need a blueprint. You need to have the plans in order to say, you know, who is the, uh, um, which construction company you're going to use. Oh, you can. We get quite a few. We get quite a few pre-submission inquiries. Um, the advantage of the pre-submission inquiry is, um, you. I mean, I mean, of course, with EndNote, it's not very difficult to format a paper anymore. But if you're trying to say, you know, between, um, I'm, I'm going to give you all the two top journals, between Nature and Cell, sort of a thing, they are very different formats. Uh, and it takes time to write the paper, you know, to write it in a certain format and make it a certain length and so on and so forth. Um, and they're not sort of e easily interconvertible journals. Um, and so it's worth making the pre-submission inquiry. And if there is an editorial interest in what you're trying, excuse me, trying to say, you, you have a better chance of, you know, getting it through, I think. At least you know the paper's going to go out for review. Because I remember in my lab, when I was a postdoc, you know, if it didn't make it at Cell, uh, at those days, developmental cell, none of the other journals existed. Molecular cell was there, but none of the other journals existed. Genes and development was our next choice. And the reason is because you don't have to reformat the paper. It basically looks the same. I have a question about the connection between conference presentations and publication. Do your editors ever do any scouting um, at meetings and invite people to submit? All the time. That's why we go to meetings. We typically, um, as uh, me as an editor, I've gone to about six to seven meetings every year. And the only, re I mean, the, of course, there are multiple reasons to go. You know, you want to find out who's who. You want to get to know people. 
you want to find out you know, who would be a potentially young investigator who might be a great reviewer. Uh, but uh, the main reason is to figure out you know, there's some up and coming hot science that you think you want to, what we call as recruit for the journey. And my, uh, my email's on the website. Um, I, I didn't bring my cards, I'm sorry. Uh, but it's on the journal website, Cellhost and Micro website. It's www.cellhostandmicro.com. Feel free to email me if you have ever any questions. Um, and um, I'm, I'm not, I think Vivian Siegel had come two years ago, was it? Last Vivian, year. last year. And I think she gave more of a workshop. Uh, this is not by any means what, as in-depth as what she gave. But it's a sort of a behind-the-scenes look at um, you know, kinds of considerations we put into um, thinking of a paper and how that might help you when you're thinking of writing a paper. Can you explain the difference between the editorial board and the editor-in-chief? Yeah, yeah. So for, for, for a journal like the Cell Press Journal, these are professionally edited journals. So here, our editorial board is only advisory. They do not make any decisions on any of the papers. The decision rests entirely with us. Whereas in a journal like, um, Journal of Cell Biology has uh, I think an editorial board, or, um, I'm sorry, there's so many journals of biology, the kind where there's an editorial board. Um, I think Journal of Cell Biology is one of them, yeah. So you send your paper to one of the editors, and the rest of the editorial board is sort of advisory. And the, the editor who's handling your paper makes, but they're academic editors. That's not their main job. They have a day job, and then they do this, you know, as a service to the community afterwards. Did I make anything, did I make it clear at all? The editor-in-chief in that case is sort of uh, guiding the journal along, but they're not making decisions on particular papers. They, in those cases, the decisions on particular papers rest with the person who's editing your paper, the academic who's editing your paper. Do, at least, do you understand the two models of publishing, the academic editors and the... Like PLOS, PLOS Biology has uh, professionally run, professional editors, whereas PLOS Pathogens has academic editors. So feel free to email me if any further questions persist and you didn't want to ask it in this forum. Uh, I think I heard Dr. Um, Goyal Lashley volunteer to come back and host uh, a workshop <laughs> on <laughs> um, running an abstract. So I'll be sending that out on the post-op list. So keep your eye out for that. Thank you very much. You're welcome.